The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I'm your host, Nick Nanavati, and this week we have a super awesome, exciting guest over here. So one of my friends, one of my teammates, one of the coaches here on Art of War, he's available, of course, Alex McDougal. Alex, how are you doing? Doing great. That's awesome. For those of you who may not be familiar, Alex is a forces of the hive mind aficionado, all things Tyranid and Gene Steeler cult. This man is your expert go-to guy. He has won the Best in Faction Award for Forces of the Hive Mind three years in a row on the ITC. He's won multiple different major tournaments, such as Attack X, and he's even made the top eight of LVO. He's up and coming on the Art of War team that we're sending to the Kansas City Open at the end of May, one of the last tournaments of ninth edition, I expect. And then additionally... Alex is here to share his secrets on the hive mind. So, of course, this is a two-part show. In the fir- first part of this episode, we're going to talk about Alex as a player. We're going to get to know him, his philosophies on the game, his approach to 40K, how he's successful over years and years and years mastering the hive mind and what that looks like, and how can you be a faction expert in a time where there's so much meta chasing going on. After that, we're going to go to part two. That's going to be for patrons only. You can sign up on our website, aow40k.com. You'll get access to the second half of this show, as well as Unbroken. Two awesome shows. In part two, we're going to go over Alex's Gene Stealer cult list that he has been dominating with, and I believe is also taking to the upcoming Kansas City team tournament with the Art of War squad. So, Alex, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. You're ready. Tell me a tale. How did you get into this game? I got into this game based on the recommendation of a friend, uh, and a friend that knew me pretty well. Uh, he said, hey, you like StarCraft, right? I was like, yeah, I love StarCraft. He's like, what if you could play that turn-based in person? I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. And then they were like, hey, there's already a faction that's identical to Zerg. I was like, all right, sign me up. <laughs> nice. So you were already in StarCraft. How old were you when this happened? 13. 13. I always nice. get some early. I just had like uh, mm-hmm. Mark Perry on. He started in his... In his- early years, same with John Lennon just the week before. So It's a great way to do it. If you spend all your money on Warhammer, you won't have any money for drugs or crime. <laughs> That's true. <I'm>, honestly, <laughs> can't get into gangs. The only gang you're going to get into is like a Warhammer team. That's right. Nice. So you're 13 years old. You're from Canada. You're playing Warhammer. What is that like? Uh, it is you only play with the handful of friends that know the game. Like It's such a small community at that time, you know, 20 years ago. 22 years ago oh boy um it's like you you have every game is a pickup game just a random pickup game at the local game store which i was actually pretty blessed with i had a a really good local game store that would let us play there every saturday um but yeah it was such a small little group just like six or seven people and we would rotate in and out playing each other you know half of us were getting dropped off by our parents oh yeah i love the life yeah that's awesome so did each of you have like your own factions and you just played that one Oh yeah, no, 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 no. You don't, you know, like at my faction, you go play your faction. <laughs> like we, there's only like seven of us. You don't double up. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So you chose forces the hive mind or Tyranids, I suppose, because Gene Steeler cult wasn't even army back in the day, and it didn't even exist yet. Yeah, it didn't even exist. How the times have changed. So you're playing Tyranids. You're playing. I imagine not that often when you're able to with your very limited squad of people, oh, and yeah. somehow 
you transitioned from that to going to tournaments and now dominating tournaments. So what is the story behind that progression? Um, I think, so I started doing competitive sports when I was pretty young. So I wasn't like a stranger to competition and it wasn't a thing that like seemed intimidating or not. Not that there was anything particularly competitive going on, but I didn't have an issue with losing. You know, I've been on some teams that were really good, some teams that were really bad. Uh, when I first started playing Warhammer, um, the local game store that I was going to, some of us were really young. And then some of the people that were there were like, you know, late teens. So they could drive themselves. And obviously they were just better players, like substantially. And I, I remember telling them even back then, like, hey, just like kick my ass until I'm good. That's, I don't care about losing. You guys just like keep throwing good lists at me. I know you guys are better players than me. Just keep beating me and eventually I'll catch up. And that's exactly what happened. So we weren't demoralized at all, but just going to people who were better than you and just getting pounded over and over again? Uh, I mean, maybe sometimes. Um, It's hard to remember that long ago, honestly. But I think it was like sometimes demoralizing, but sometimes you, as long as you could see some amount of progress, well, I did better than last time. Like last time was really bad and this time was only like so bad. Like I, I progressed pretty quickly. I was catching up relatively fast. I guess if I didn't see any like progress, I probably would have been frustrated, but I kept seeing myself like, I, I don't win any games. Like, ah, I win one in five games. I win one in four games. And that was enough for me. Mm-hmm. So like when you were not very good and this is obviously is kind of how you got better, what were the ways or things in which you actually improved on like positioning or target priority or like, how did you go about thinking about the game to improve? Cause I imagine a lot of people find themselves in this exact spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think back then it was probably just understanding the mechanics of the game. Like when you first get into a game and you're looking at things, a lot of times you don't have any frame of reference. You're like, oh, that's a big number. Is that a good big number? Um, is that is that number big enough to be worth it? And then you start understanding about like, okay, it looks really good, but it, it's too many points. Or it looks really good, but you can never leverage what's good about it. Um, you know, back then, the terrain was probably pretty bad. You're like, look at this great monster. Like, yeah, but it never gets into combat. So I think it was really an understanding of fundamentally, like, how combos worked of like, oh, this character goes with this. And then that makes this squad that you didn't think was good actually good. Um, it right. definitely took a long time, but I think I think now it's hard to even look back on that because, you know, guys like us, we look at a codex and we've got, like, the framework of it figured out in about 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's stuff we teach to how to do in the war room and the dissecting mm-hmm. codex and what to analyze, of course. But, no, it makes perfect sense. Your frame of reference is definitely, when you're starting out a game, um, the most challenging thing to get a grasp of. Like, what is good? What is expensive? What is cheap? What is efficient? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you start to develop that, it's it's acting upon that information, right? It's like, okay, I really like my carn effects. Kind of sucks. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Um, a number of times that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, so that's another interesting aspect of this, right? And and let's before we keep going, what do you think the timeline progression was? And I know you were only able to get however many games and you could because of your location and your age and all that. But in terms of you started out at 13 and you're ever, however old you are now and you're top eighting LVO. So at, at what point did you see progress through the years? And like, was it, were there periods of intense playing or practice to facilitate that? Uh, I mean, it, honestly, as far as like real competitive things, it, 
probably didn't really start until 8th edition. Um, that's when the scene got big enough that I was able to go to places that were hosting big events. So the first tournament I ever went to was like a 14-person RTT, and I think I was 19 or 20. Okay, and so there's I, a big gap between starting the game and playing tournaments. Yeah, for sure. Like, again, this is way before big tournaments were happening, or at least that I knew about them, and they certainly weren't happening in my little small you know, regional area of Canada. And then some, it was like a, I think it was a tournament at a college and I did win that event. So as far as competitive things started, I did start off on the right foot. But again, this is like a 14 player RTT. At that time, that was like, oh, a tournament. But now we like, okay, so that's like a thing that anyone could schedule at any time nowadays. <laughs> like people don't think about that. Like that's not even a blip on the radar. Um, I eventually did start going to an event called Big Con, which was about an hour away. And is now, or that became Attack X. So that was a tournament that ran for about eight years. And that was probably one of the bigger that was like actually gaining attention from people outside of just the area. Like people from Vancouver would come, we'd get some people up from the States. We'd hit, even back then, maybe like 40 players. And again, that was like, that was a really big deal back in fourth edition or fifth edition but and then eventually the that evolved. definitely grown dramatically in the past oh, five years it's ridiculous every single time i go on goonhammer they're like all right here's the tournament report like nine super majors happened this week <laughs> oh yeah oftentimes i go through your little on reddit the meta monday post to see what happened over the weekend and then it's like there's like nine tournaments yeah it's nuts um the first thing that really properly ensured, like, okay, okay, I can do this. My my thought process was always like, am I actually a good player or am I a big fish in a small pond? Because I don't know how competitive my region is. That kind of thing happens all the time. You play some game with your friends and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty good. And then suddenly the version of that game comes out online and you're like, oh, I'm not good. Okay. <laughs> Everyone's so better than me. Even at that like young age, you were able to recognize like the humility it takes to be like my, I could be a big fish in a small pond, you know, despite any success I'm seeing, you know, it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean I'm actually good. Well, I'd experienced that a number of times before. Like I said, I've done a decent amount of competitive things as before that I did track and field. And again, I did pretty well in my school and then I did pretty well in my region. And then there was like the big all of BC and I got smoked by everyone. I was like last place. And I was like, oh, okay. So this thing can just happen. I did chess as well. Same kind of thing. Really good at where I was at. Okay in the region. Went to the big like uh, province wide. Got crushed. So I understood that that was like a thing that could happen. And I was like, I mean, my assumption with Warhammer was like, well, surely this is the same thing. And then the first Las Vegas Open I ever went to, um, I just got like the dream run as far as like playing big names. Um, I played uh, Heffelfinger, Naden, um, Matt Johansson. He's a great player. Mark Hurtel and Jeff Robinson, like all in a row. Like I knew yeah, every at the single time, person that I was in row for sure. Yeah, at, and like I was a nobody. Like nobody knew who I was, and I did okay. I went three wins, a draw. The draw was against Naden, and then two losses. And I was like, you know, I would hope for maybe one more win. But honestly, with who I was playing, I was like so happy about that. Um, and I was like, okay, okay, I can do this. And then kind of like that's where i really started getting into like okay i'm gonna travel to events it's worth my time i should be able to compete at whatever level we'll see what happens yeah definitely so now that you have kind of like a framework for all right i went to a really big tournament the biggest one in the world at the time and did decently you know against some of the best players out there at least the, some of the players that you read about on the internet and 
that probably fueled your confidence quite a bit to keep going. So in Kauai, it's like that that consistent progression over time. What did you do after that? Uh, that's when I started going to as many practical GTs and majors as I could. Um, and doing those, I realized that, well, after going to Las Vegas Open, I realized that my area was actually reasonably competitive. So I was getting pretty decent practice there. And then as I traveled, basically all the events that I went to, it was it, it became that point where every event I went to was like a guaranteed at least X and one. I could win it, but that wasn't a sure thing at all. But it was like it was always at least four and one. Um, so it was fun to go to all these events and just know I could threaten to win, even if it didn't happen. Um, so yeah, I just went to like everything I could get to, which was still somewhat challenging at the time in the beginning of eighth. That was still a lot of travel, a lot of driving. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, now it's definitely more accessible with there being tournaments all over the place, which is definitely a blessing for people mm-hmm. like you and I who grew up playing this game. Like I remember back when my local store would have a tournament once every three months, and that's what I got to play in. So let's transition the talk a little bit, because right about now is when you start to see real competitive success. You know, you play some wild LVO, you you met some of the best players, uh, you're, you're networking socially. I know I met you at Charity Hammer, and that was a big uh, transition period for a lot of people in, in 40k competitive network growing outside of regional. And uh, there from there, you, you followed a really natural progression, right? You're going to tournaments, you're, you're going to every major you can, just getting better, getting better, getting better, getting reps. But you never switched factions. And most people, when they, when they start to see success like this, and they start to invest time and money to travel around the world to do this, they're like, you know what? Let me, let me pick up a really good army. Because Tyranids, for however broken they were during ninth, They've not always been broken. They've been a bit of a roller coaster of good, bad, good, bad. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> in, in those down and dirty times, you stick them through. What is the love obsession with Tyranids that drives you through it? And how do you not get bored? How do you do it? Tell me about this. For me, I mean, it's not that I've only ever played Tyranids and Gene Steeler Cult. I have played most of the armies in the game at different times, but just not in 8th or ninth. In 8th and ninth, I've been only Tyranids GSC. Uh, and honestly, it's mostly about playstyle, and it's, it's the whole thing. It's the aesthetic, it's the feel, it's like how they play. Um, I've played it with a lot of other armies, and because of how they play, I've become bored and gone back to Tyranids. Like, I would play a faction where I'm like, this doesn't do enough close combat, and I like having close combat, or there's no psychic, and that's boring. The next closest army for what kind of is an army that can sort of do it all and keeps my attention is Eldar. I have played a decent amount of Eldar, but then at the same time, like they're cool, but they're just not as cool as Tyranids. Um, so I just, I always kept going back to them. Uh, as far as what I do when they're bad, um, like I said, I've, I've always kind of been in a situation where I'm okay with like not winning. So I would just try and take what I could and push it as far as possible. And if the limit to that was just four and one, that was, that was fine. If they ever got, so bad or so imbalanced and i kind of feel like this won't happen again because of how actively gw is fixing things um if i ever got to a point where i even with no matter how hard i tried with tyranids i was going like two and three or three and two i probably would have dropped them although if, again with playing tyranids and gse if one gets really bad i can just swap to the other yeah it makes a lot of sense and and you mentioned their play style and how you tried to apply that play style to other armies and you found it bored um 
I often find the same thing. Like Tyrion and Eldar, I also play both of those factions. They are stylistically really similar. They operate in all the phases, and they're very yeah. fast as kind of their identity. But where would you say that aligns with what your play style is? Uh, I want to be doing something all the time. Uh, I like... I, I'm not a particularly passive player. Whether I'm playing defensive or offensive, depending on how the game is going or what my you know, the meta has allowed me to do. I still want to be doing something. I don't want to have turns where I'm like, I'm going to throw some shade at Death Guard players, where the first two turns I'm like, well, I move forward a bit. Like, that's just not enough for me. I have to, like, be thinking of something all the time. I like, okay, put myself in a position where I'm going to be able to react to my opponent. I've put my, you know, I've been able to project some threat across the board, set up traps, set up plays, even if I haven't necessarily gone in for an attack yet. Um, and Tyrion's just allowed you to do that all the time. And GSC, same thing, where you're like, look, I've put models on every single objective that I can. You're going to have to come and get them. And when you show yourself, that's when the big drop turn is going to come in. So I'm always, I'm always thinking. And some of the armies just didn't do that for me. So it's not necessarily that you actually want to be doing something all the time in terms of my, my army is always moving towards you, always shooting, you, always punching you. It's more that you always want to have an abundance of options and you want to be able to just create options for yourself to think about and evaluate and try to figure out the best one because that's kind of like how you find enjoyment in the game. Yeah, asking my opponent to make decisions. Like a lot of times when you're playing Gene Sealer Cult, the win isn't necessarily from like the plays you're making, but it's winning from forcing your opponent to make a bunch of decisions. A number of those decisions are going to be the wrong decisions. And then that's how you capitalize off of that. And that's like such a like 4D chess that just gets my brain going. And I enjoy it so much. No, that's awesome. It really is. And it's super in line. We actually had uh, Anthony and Mark, uh, two other Art of War coaches on recently. And they're both very they're more aggressive players that try to force mistakes upon their opponent through an overwhelming amount of decisions or, or option possibility. And I asked them the same question. I'm going to ask it to you. That plan makes sense, right? And especially with an army like Gene Sealer Cult, where you are just throwing so many potentialities at your opponent that, like, if not this way, then that way, something will screw up here. But um, there does come a point, especially where you, where you compete at these days, you know, the highest levels of competitive 40K, where you play against the robots of the world, like Richard Ziegler. And, <laughs> you know, they may just not really make mistakes because that level every trick you have is relatively known it's talked about like it's a casual dinner conversation and they there's teams of people who try to solve the gene stealer cult matchup so to speak so if your plan goes into those games with they're going to screw it up somewhere and not to take advantage of that if they're that practiced and that knowledgeable about it does your plan kind of fall short uh it can i suppose at that point we're getting down to we're really valuing how powerful the Gene Sealer Cult army is compared to the opponent's army. Um, I think... Are you saying that because you're assuming the tricks won't necessarily work? Yeah, if the tricks don't work... Like, currently, Gene Sealer Cult is very good. Um, Even if the tricks don't work and my opponent plays it correctly, they still definitely have the muscle where I can just... We both play a really clean, efficient game where there's very few mistakes being made and they will still be able to come out on top. Sometimes the, you know, it's it's chess where you've got the knight somewhere where you're like, well, uh, I can hit here and here. You can save one of those pieces. You can't save them both. And there's a lot of stuff where you can do that with Gene Sealer Cult where you're like, look, you can take this unit off the center so I don't get a 12, but the unit that does that now has to die. 
And when you do that, that's going to break your screen. And I'm going to drop the three inch unit in behind to get a bunch of damage and steal one of your other objectives. So if you, the, the, there is no correct decision in this part. You either give me a 12 on primary or you sacrifice a unit and I give you a four on the next turn anyway. Like, take your pick. I'm either getting more points or you're losing points and losing models in both regards. You're basically putting them correct decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and making them decide. Makes perfect sense, really. So let's bring it back. We're definitely going to cover the specific gene steer cult trips and ticks, like using that three inch lying in wait trick to score points and screw up their screens. That's going to be all in part two for our patrons, exactly how Alex plays this GSC army. But back to your play style and how you have gone about playing with Tyranids and Gene Cult forever and kind of identified it with this. Do you, how do you not... Um, that play style with the armies you've chosen, Tyranids and GSC, for most of their existence in 40k, Leviathan withstanding, they've not been able to really just have the muscle to go toe-to-toe with like the firepower that the game produces or like the, the super combat armies that the game produces and their unkillableness. They have to rely more on like movement and problem-solving and tricks to do. So if someone can just jam raw power at you very effectively, is that kind of where your army stumbles on itself? Or do you have enough outs in your list creation? Do you build that in? Unless it's really, really egregious, most of the time you can figure out a way to sidestep that a lot of these armies that are really powerful can only apply that power in focused parts of the board so the way that i would usually play the game if the armies that i was playing weren't particularly powerful is i would play with speed that's the same thing you're saying about like you playing eldar as well where okay fine i don't have a ton of output but i could make sure that my output can never be hit back because it's too quick, so I I might not be able to do the damage you can do, but I can do half the damage you can do, and I'm going to get to do it for four turns of the game, because you're never catching this unit. Um, I usually would play fast and high objective secured, so it was a lot of, I didn't kill you, but I killed just enough to steal the objective, and that, that was a trade piece anyway. So I'll, I'll throw that out, steal the objective from you, lose that, that's fine. That was points gained and points lost for you. It didn't kill much, but it didn't need to and just playing really heavily into the mission and hiding like a coward worked really well for most of 8th and ninth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's that's pretty much the default, right? Like, especially when you're playing a fast army, Eldar Tyrion's kind of similar in that regard. Um, you can always just, instead of doing raw power, try to outscore them, try to deny them primary, uh, try to block their secondaries, that kind of thing. For what it's worth, Alex, I think you'd also really enjoy playing demons. Oh, probably. I Weirdly for me, their aesthetics not for me. Really, just, you could do like anything with it though. Like you could just convert a whole demon army. If you're that's that. true. That's true. It's. I mean, okay. Admittedly, this variant of chaos demons probably appeals to me um, as far as playstyle. But previously, I was not enjoying how they would play at all. I've never played chaos at all. It's one of the few factions, sub factions I've never played, and I don't know if I'll ever try it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, as a diehard demon player, this makes me sad. But uh, <laughs> fair enough. So, talk to me about your playstyle in terms of units on the table, because oftentimes when you have playing Tyranids, you have a variety of different options, right? You could do a swarm of little dudes sometimes. In middle of ninth edition, warrior spam was was the rage, but Carnifex spam was also a thing. Big bugs in general were fine. Kraken appeared itself, and there's all these different avenues to go 
where do you gravitate towards? Especially like for players, not just in Tyranids, but anytime they have a new codex or just a strong codex that has a lot of different viable builds, how do you figure out which one makes sense for your play style? And, and then value, evaluate that compared to which one is actually objectively the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, stylistically, generally speaking, I would say I've found that I kind of fall in as a horde player. I like lots of bodies. Um, been able to narrow down that the reason I like that is it usually allows for the most flexibility of like tactics and play. Um, the big boys have never really appealed to me because there's not a whole lot of like tricks you can do. Like, well, I, I threw my Carnifex into your face and he did damage. And did I kill enough to kill the valuable stuff or kill you off of the objective? Great. But with hordes, you always have that like, well, I charged you and then I wrapped up these two units and I touched two tanks and I stole this objective and I spread halfway across the board. Like, there's just so much more you can do with hordes. Um, stylistically, from like an aesthetic, if I'm looking at Tyranids, I usually like a relatively mixed force. Like, I, I, I don't know, I want the Tyranid army to look like how I would imagine it on the battlefield in, <laughs> in quote, a real life, where there's like a few big leader beasts, a couple of mid-range, and then a horde of, of little stuff. And luckily, that's actually what my Tyranid list right now looks like. They've done um, a really good job, I would say, of actually, for the most part, making a competitive list actually look like it's coming out of a codex. Oh, yeah. No, I think the flavor of Ninth in all the books has been, like, spot on for most of the books. Like, if you look at Chaos Demons, you're, like, a couple of big boys with a bunch of, like, smaller demons being commanded by them you know um a guard book looks like a guard army like all the most competitive guard lists i've seen are like three or four tanks 50 infantrymen some mortars some characters some specialist units I'm like yeah that's that's what a guard army should look like yeah completely agreed on that yeah. um back to the question though uh how do you go about finding your like you like to play horde right but maybe <laughs> monsters are better maybe like a mix is better or something how do you identify, or not even identify, but how do you go from the merge of your play style versus what is actually good? Oh, I'm always willing to compromise. Like, I've, I don't think they've ever gone so hard, or at least not recently. I don't think they've ever gone so hard on certain units where you're just like, oh, this is the only viable play style. It might load up. Like, let's say with Tyranids, it, like, it loads up heavier on the monsters where it's better. Like, I'll still find some way to get some of the units that I want in there. Um, okay, actually, to go even more into this, um, if we're looking at the beginning of Ninth, that was, or sorry, not beginning, the beginning of the Tyranid book when it dropped in Ninth. Um, obviously, that book was like completely broken. It was insanely powerful, but it used no hordes. And I didn't use Gaunts, I didn't use Termagants, Gene Steelers, Gargoyles. All the little stuff was just not nearly as good as Warriors, Raveners, and a lot of the big stuff. And I just didn't play Hordes. Uh, I wasn't thrilled about it, but I did it. <laughs> so yeah, you definitely want to compromise to make, to make that. And it's not... Where I was I would, going with that is more like, so let's say the monster build when Tyranids dropped was objectively better. You're not trying even to splash Hordes in because you like it. You, you'd like, you will just recognize what's better and kind of look at it fundamentally at its truths and then just chase that. Yeah. Yeah, if I can, I will attempt to play in the way that is more interesting to me. Um... When that book dropped and everyone was playing Tyranids and it was most important to have to like beat the mirror, um, it, you just had to play to beat Tyranids. Um, and for me, the one of the things that made it not so bad is my favorite Tyranid is the Warrior. And 
warrior spam was like king at that point. So right. I was like, I was disappointed to not play my hordes, but I had when that book dropped, I was like, damn, warriors are nuts. And I had 27 fully painted warriors from like 10 years ago, like ready to go. I'm like, oh, oh I'm so you, sad. Let's go. <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> oh, I was ready. Because they had been kind of trash for a long time. And then finally they were like, yeah, no, they're a Terminator that hits harder for 25 points. I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> Let's go. How do you feel personally when like you, you as the diehard Terminator player who actually has these 27 warriors painted from forever ago and they're finally amazing. And now every person on Earth is all of a sudden like, I'm a Terminator player too. Here's my 27 warriors. What's that like? I mean, I joke about it, but I don't, I can't really cry shame or foul on anyone who's like, I just, this is the best book in the game. If you want to compete, you kind of got to play it. Um, especially when it was that, like, that bad at the time. Like, I think when that book dropped, it was like 68% win rate. Like, yeah, it was absurd. I, I get it. I get it. it. It's happened. Like, I don't do it, obviously, because I'm such a, like, only Terrence, only GSC. But I mean, I know so many people at the top players now that they're like, I just will simply play what's good, and I no shame in that. I don't care. You you do you. You play whatever you want. Definitely. So let's let's fast forward a little bit into more recent history and talk about LVO, where you played uh, more or less Kraken Tyranids, very very similar to John Lennon's list. I'm sure you guys worked on together at points. Um, Raveners, Flyrants, really fast, awesome stuff. Very amazing army. And then on the other hand, you have GSC as an option because of course you're. You're very adept at both. And they're also very good at the time. You know, very skill intensive. Very few players can make the results happen with them. But you yourself, you know, winning Force of the Hive Mind three years back to back, I assume, are have the capability. So how do you evaluate when both your armies are skill intensive, awesome, finesse, effective, which one to go with? I think at the time, I think the GSC list was definitely really good. I know Tyler Bortel, I think he went four and two and he only lost to like Anthony, and I can't remember who his second loss was. But when I was looking at the two options for the GSC side of things, there was a couple of matchups that looked, I can't even remember what they were at the time now. It's been long enough. But there was a couple of matchups that were just like, if you go up against a player of equal skill, you will simply lose, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and that was not really, like, at a lot of tournaments, and as somebody who's a faction specialist and has had to deal with that before, of like, oh no, four and one is just the best you can do right now because the top army, you'll play in the final round and you'll lose. I'm okay with that at like, anything up to a major. But if it's Las Vegas Open, I'm going to give myself the best shot to win. And I think Nids gave me a better shot than GSC to win. Um, it had less bad matchups. It was stronger. They were both really fun lists to play. So I, like neither of them did I feel like, I'm like, oh, I'm just playing the best thing and I'm going to be bored the whole time. Um, and there was also... We at that point we knew the Nids nurse were coming, and there was a little bit of that feeling of like, okay, last hurrah, let's go. Definitely, basically, just kind of went with the one that had the better matchup suite at the time, and that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, I there, like I was deeply tempted to run GSC at some point because one of the matchups actually would be the matchup I would eventually lose in the shadow round was against Tau, and weirdly, that GSC list just obliterated the, the meta Tau list. It was so bad for Tau. <laughs> And then I was like, ah, yeah, but there's a bunch of other matchups that are really bad for GSC, so we'll go with Jaren's. And uh, I think John is like 90% of that list, and I'm like 10% of that list. And I was like, nah, he's done a really good job of cooking this thing up. Let's let's give it a run. No, it was one of the scariest lists in the game. I did not oh, want for anything sure. to do with it. Yeah, but 
it in perspective, so obviously Jack wins LVO, Blood Angels, we realize just how good they are. So I played one of Team Spain's members, uh, Alejandro, who is a great guy to play against, and he was playing Blood Angels, and he got Defender Drop and Go First on the Sisters Cathedral map, and like yeah. plunked the monster cathedral down in the center of the board, and then stuffed like 40 objective secured bodies onto it on turn one, because he went first. And Tyrant still gave me the ability to win that game. That's amazing. That's, Most that's people lose on deployment roll in that matchup. Oh, it was brutal. I mean, I only won by like three points. It was an incredibly close game. And there was like a couple of late game rolls that were incredibly clutch that saved the game for me. Um, but yeah, even just the fact that Tyrants gave me a hope of winning that. Like if that was the Thousand Suns Demons list... Uh, it instantly loses. That's just the game over. Um, if that was Tau, that's instant game over. Like, but Blood Angels just win both of those matchups on the spot, on the defender roll, and going first. Yeah, it happened. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was Jack and TJ in the Shadow Round as well. <laughs> yeah, in the Shadow Round, Jack's playing oh, oops. TJ. Game's over. TJ <laughs> concedes turn two. He's like, I can't, I have no outs. This game's yep. done. Yeah. All right, so we have kept the audience in suspense long enough. Alex, why don't you walk us through this Gene Stealer cult list that you are playing in the Arcs of Omen season here in Ninth, and you are crushing people with? Uh, this list is a little bit of me, but mostly it's Lithurus and uh, Bortel. And it's something I had sort of experimented with, but they had refined. Um, it's a really cool list. It's 140 bodies and then six characters. <laughs> it is 80 neophytes. Uh, four bricks of 20, and all of them have proficient planning upgrades. Um, we have 3 to 6 charge, show up at 3. Uh, if you only shoot a single target, you get plus 1 to hit, plus 1 to wound. And uh, the proficient planning that lets you take their blip off the board and then walk them onto the board as if it's one turn ahead of time. Uh, and then there's three units of absolutely naked 5-man acolytes, just nothing on them. Uh, they are the points getters and movement blockers and you know primary stealers. One of them has excavate. Um, excavate has been hit or miss. Excavate is the I select a piece of terrain on the board and it loses light, heavy, dense, and gains difficult terrain. Sometimes your terrain won't line up very well. We are going to a GW format where I will be able to turn a 12 by 12 brick of terrain into a piece of garbage. Um, don't stick your entire army in there or your entire army starts with minus two to move. Uh, and then we've got three units of 10 bikes, uh, two demo charges in each, two quads with flamers, uh, and one of those has the pregame move, and that is a 14 on the bikes. So the bikes go 28, in one of the units of bikes goes 28 inches on turn one, and then there are six characters. Kellermorph for damage and assassination, Sanctus for the free token, anything it shoots immediately gets a crossfire token, Primus, Nexos, and Icon Ward for regeneration and all the buffs. And then, I'm just doing all this off my head, what is that last character? Icon Ward, Nexus, Sanctus, Kellermorph, Primus. Oh, right, and the Reductive Saboteur. And the Reductive Saboteur is a bit of a tech piece, because one of the worst matchups in the game for them is Imperial Guard, and the Saboteur levels that playing field a little bit, uh, since she is specifically anti-tank. Oh, and the most important piece of all, uh, a single Scout Sentinel in an Auxiliary Detachment from Guard. <laughs> Can't forget the Scout Sentinel. No, he is there to specifically give a path for the the bikes on turn one. Alex, you're giving away the trade secrets. Oh, Everybody, yeah. we're gonna finish this conversation up in part two. <laughs> 40 kcom That's gonna be for patrons. 
We're going to walk through exactly the whys for Alex's five characters, the random scout sentinel, the specific choices of upgrades on his different units, and then much more importantly than all of that, how he actually uses this. When does he? What opportunities does he look for to deep strike in? How does someone maybe defend against the mysterious Gene Stealer cult? And how to, what to look out for that they're going to try to do to you? We're going to reveal it all. So stay tuned. We'll see you next time. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. No problem. All right, everybody. We will see you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. <laughs>